0: Hi, and welcome to and introducing a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on vocals, guitar, and that weird little harmonica caddy thing, it's the man, the singer songwriter. It's Bob Dylan. Yes, we are taking a swing at one of the giants of 60s and 70s rock and folk music. Uh, you know who he is, it's Bob Dylan, through his book, Chronicles, Volume 1. Will there ever be a Volume 2? Uh, I feel like the word right now is no. Well, I like the boldness of uh, calling your, your book Chronicles, Volume 1, with absolutely no plan or <laughs> intention of there ever being a Volume 2. It's a boss move. It is a boss move. Anyway, it's Bob Dylan, and we're to, we're joined today to talk through Chronicles, Volume 1, uh, by our guest... Hey, it's the
1: Jokerman. Look at these jokers. What's up, guys? What's Whoa. up? Oh, that's our that's our usual. <laughs> uh, I've got an actual Bob Dylan series harmonica here, so that's that's how we The Bob Dylan series. Yep. Yeah, wow. signature I, I think series. Also, only a
2: volume one of now, that you, harmonica <laughs> series. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this sounds like
4: this man owes us a lot of uh, content and objects. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, I'm
2: on waiting on bated breath for that volume two harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a it's a uh,
1: what? It's an F, I think, or maybe is it a? It, yeah, it's an F. So you know, maybe maybe we'll get a G one day, and then then we'll have the real fun start. <laughs> yeah,
0: God willing. Uh, do you have the harmonica caddy?
1: No harmonica caddy. No, I've looked for that before. Right, got to pick one of those. Yeah, yeah, I know. Maybe you know. Hey, if anyone's out there, if you got a harmonica caddy, uh, I just opened a PO box today for the show. Uh, so <laughs> I'll give you our address. Hey, you can send it to me.
0: So we usually start. um this uh these episodes by kind of going around and talking about uh what our relationship to the artists is uh how how we know them how we feel about them uh you guys do an entire bob dylan pod uh a bob pod uh so i'll let you guys start uh why why pod about bob what what do you what do you love about him how'd you come to bob dylan
2: i'm evan and the other voice is ian so yes. let's just get that oh yes oh good uh, uh, away yes. good to uh,
0: identify yourself
2: <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, I I showed Ian Bob Dylan. Um, he he didn't know who Bob Dylan was. A li- until You're I, a liar. I showed him. I said, <laughs> remember, I don't believe you. Ian was just listening to a lot of uh, Boston. That was his favorite b- band. And I said, <laughs>
0: Boston. That one Boston album, bro.
2: Yeah, uh, he he listened to that album. That was the only music he heard. And then I showed him Bob Dylan. Um, I think I don't know when. I I think we both have a kind of similar relationship to Bob Dylan in that like it was kind of a high school sweetheart uh first music crush type thing like finding mm. uh hearing certain songs and then just sort of um discovering probably like I don't know Ian was, was it like blonde on blonde and bringing it all back home for you that those were like the big I think it was blood on the tracks first for me right you know as it is for many people yeah I think it was for me too actually I think I first heard blood on the tracks songs probably
1: yeah my father's a big music nut like like absurdly good taste as far as like dad's music taste goes you know he's a punk Mm. rock guy um (laughs) but also bob guy and um and so he you know blood on the tracks is like maybe one of his favorite (laughs) records of all time uh and so that was always kind of in rotation when i was growing up and then at a certain point i discovered like you know this is more than just the music my dad is playing for me it's like this actually kind of rocks. Uh and so that you know that was an easy entry in there and then yeah probably the original kind of uh trilogy or the you know the rock trilogy from the 60s <laughs> and free wheeling were kind of the big next steps and then at a certain point you know once you once you have the certain kind of brain damage that Evan and I have uh you discover like <laughs> Planet Waves is out there and Street Legal is out there. And as we're going to discuss later, Oh Mercy is out there. And that's the real, once you get a taste of that real hard shit, the uncut shit, you just, you're hooked for life. It's like, it's like Fent.
2: I would also say though that, uh, I mean, it's kind of feels silly to talk about Dylan and and becoming like a really big fan of Bob Dylan without also uh, talking about his, his persona and, and, learning about him that way I mean I don't think I would have gotten as interested in his later music uh if I didn't have some beliefs about who this man was and what he was like and the fact Mm -hmm. that he's like the coolest uh coolest guy (laughs) so I I think that it was a combination of yes like being um really impressed and, and and loving that early music those first discoveries but also in tandem with that seeing clips from those press conferences and stuff from Don't Look Back and just various things from, you know, uh, Rolling Thunder, all all of that stuff, but especially those clips of him talking um, Mm -hmm. and and then realizing that there's just so much more out there that this man just kept going and being fascinated about what that means. And going and going. And going and going and going. And and (laughs) And is still
0: going.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah?
0: Yeah, so... um, I don't know about Molly. I'll I'll go I'll go first on yeah, our end um, because I do have to admit, and I know I this this always kind of sucks when we come on artists uh, like this for the pod because I know for a listener you don't want to listen to a guy who doesn't really know anything about anything go off, but <laughs> of the heavy hitters of the sixties, sixties seventies era, like Dylan is probably the one that I have like the least engagement with. Uh, like all I like all the you know big. Songs, the, the the top line ones, of course, the, the like Rolling Stone, the, the the ones that everyone knows. But I don't really have that much familiarity with his uh, back catalog. It's usually, it's I would say, not really my type of thing, as Molly would uh, would probably attest to.
4: Yeah, it doesn't uh, go as hard as Chris <laughs> wants it yeah. to. Although, if if either of you can reveal any uh, Dylan songs that go hard, there's
2: some stuff that goes hard. Yeah, he did actually add drums and uh, he, he, he plug. He had an electric. Guitar to us certain so you really yeah. the ante
4: It seemed eventually. to upset a lot of people. There's even some
1: synthesizers in the 80s. That's right. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So
0: that's what I was going to say. Is that uh, all? That being said, I am my heart is open and, and I am very ready to be dill pilled. Uh, if you, um, if if you guys want to take me on that journey, uh, I, I'm I'm very happy to to be a bit in the uh, passenger seat, uh, for the a ride through Dylan and just uh, leave my heart and mind open to uh, any any songs that I have not heard yet. Hell yeah. And of course, I know, the stuff that you're saying about the narrative around him as a guy being as fascinating about his uh, music, I am aware of that as well, and uh, you know, always think that he is a, an interesting weirdo. <laughs>
4: and then for me, yeah, I had a dad, I had a Dylan dad, <laughs> I, I had a dad. Dads, we all
0: we all have them. Maybe that's the thing. I did not have a Dylan dad. My dad did like some music but he did not have like deep identification with any particular artist so he did not
2: he was not around to be like son you need to listen to this man. <laughs> that might make you better as uh, you know you might be more open even in some mysterious yeah
4: yeah you don't have the dad the dad prejudices that it, that we might have mm-hmm. but yeah we, we listened to the big the, the biggest songs um, but I never really had any w- personal relationship with Bob Dylan and then I actually came around to his 60s. Stuff in a very strange way i went to see Rylo kiley play live in 2007 and their opener was not a surf and not a surf has a song with the chorus where he says that he's listening to blonde on blonde on the radio <laughs>
3: i've got blonde
4: And I was like, "Well, this song's kind of nice. Like, maybe I should listen to Blonde on Blonde." Lucky for me, Dad had literally every. My father has probably purchased Bob Dylan's major catalog three times: mm-hmm. vinyl, Tape, tapes, CD, and CDs, and the iTunes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Dad's love buying the same the same albums again and you you (laughs) love doing that and i also like well i've inherited all this from my father yeah (laughs) it is very funny if
0: you are that type of guy who has been into music for 50 years that you do have to buy all the music over and over again and just like every 10 years they're like oh you're telling me now you're telling me the same six led zeppelin albums came out in a totally new format again Oh brother, here we, here go, we go again. Yeah.
1: My dad has every Steely Dan like record, record, and mm. then every Steely Dan CD, and then he also has the box set that just collects all of the same records again on CD. It's they just, love box <laughs> sets. Get a they new love box. And it insane, in man. Box. It is a nice box. box. Yeah, you know,
3: <laughs>
4: it's very. I mean, it, it was great for me because I could access it all immediately, and then I got into Blonde on Blonde specifically. I love. And then, I ha- yeah, I'm also pretty weak on the, the later catalog than his uh, iconic 60s decade. But I will say that, actually, my favorite Bob Dylan song is Joker Man.
1: Hey, it's so good. Hey, welcome to the club.
3: Joker Man
4: Yeah, <laughs> I was listening to it yesterday I was just like man the song goes Hell yeah,
2: that That is one that goes hard That was a major key for I mean not surprisingly for us Deciding to uh, in, in Venture into this project Was I think Joker Man Being a song that makes you realize Makes many people realize That uh, maybe they've Been missing out because like if a song Like that can happen you know 20 years After everything that people think of As Bob's Heyday. Then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, lo and behold, there's actually a bunch of those types of songs scattered yeah. all through yeah. those decades.
4: Well, let's let's get into the book. I read this book when it came out again because my dad bought it, <laughs> and it was in the house. And uh, I remember thinking it. I because I didn't know anything about the man. I almost read it like a fiction book. Right. A fi- a fiction book. A fiction
1: book, which it honestly kind of is. To...
4: Yeah it's definitely got um like tall tale vibes as opposed to any sort of conventional <laughs> memoir that we have read very much so and as we will get into bob dylan also most of this book is basically just blogging like he's just (laughs) sharing his opinions on stuff there was a time when huffington post first started and i think ariana huffington was just trying to convince celebrities to start blogging for them Mm. and the celebrities would be like what is a blog it's like well it's just like your thoughts on stuff and you would just get random celebs to do that i feel like this is bob dylan's huffington post blog (laughs) but it's good yeah (laughs) he's got some interesting thoughts
0: Molly was describing to me what this book actually is um, it, the more that the phrase chronicles of volume one uh, seemed inappropriate because to me a chronicle is like an obsessive documentation of a, a of an era and Molly's like yeah it's like mostly uh, tangentially related thoughts from two specific years yep. separated like, yeah, you uh, get like by, 30, by 20
2: there's those three sections, roughly, and they're it's kind of weird, the ones that he decides to focus on. Completely got, scattershot. super <laughs> random.
0: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> See, that is not a Chronicles. That
1: is maybe a Picaresque or possibly Musings. <laughs> or just a blog. Bob Dylan Musings, volume <laughs> This one. is definitely yeah. a book of Musings. There's no question about that. It is that. a book of Musings.
4: Yeah, so the as said, the structure is pretty much, you know, we start – in like 1961, when he's moving to New York and is doing, you know, playing folk music around New York City, then we see him again in 1970 uh, when he's recording music for a botched like musical with uh, a <laughs> uh, Archibald McLeish. Yep, and then, yeah, then we see him again. In the late 80s, uh, kind of leading up to recording Oh Mercy. So, and that's basically, yeah, that's basically it. Um, it's <laughs> as definitely far as not a plot a, like, goes. <laughs> yep. When I was, a like, it doesn't start with his birth, you know. So, yeah, we started in New York in 1961. Bob is just getting his foot in the door at Columbia Records. Uh, he says, what I was playing were hard-lipped folk songs with fire and brimstone servings and you didn't need to take polls to know they didn't match up with anything on the radio. <laughs> Bob is different. He's he's a different kind of guy. Not like the other uh, girls. He, no. Yeah, he's not like the <laughs> other girls. But He's been playing at the, the Café Wah. Café
2: Wa. <laughs> Café Wah.
0: <laughs> Classic New York City Picture venue. The downtown folks, yeah.
2: He's, okay. uh is that
0: is it still round I swear it still uh,
2: exists I don't know I've never been there I don't know if it's I, I guess it's still ostensibly functioning it's right there next to Minetta Tavern on McDougall Street so yeah he's play, he's playing there he's playing at low-level basket houses um <laughs> sometimes basket, yeah.
4: trying to trying to game the system by bringing a hot chick with him to pass the basket, mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. passing two baskets. And if, you got to do what you got to and do. It's it's yeah, li-
2: Literal baskets. I just want to be very clear. That this, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a 60s folk milieu. If you've ever seen Inside Lewin Davis, it's that mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally these uh, tiny little dingy clubs where people would – get up and do like open mics. Uh, there'd be like weirdos performing monologues. And then there'd be like people doing sea shanties and then Bob Dylan.
0: Sounds great. Uh, I do find the, the downtown folk scene very interesting and interesting that it would collect in a place like that kind of <laughs> interest in American traditional music would collect in downtown New York city. right? Um, and then of course, all of that stuff forms the DNA of what would turn into like the punk scene uh that that's that stuff going through um you know greenwich village in the early 60s it's just always a very interesting place for it to collect
1: yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh that's a good point and i think it speaks to a little bit of the reality behind what was actually driving a lot of this stuff back in that time is Mm. like you know some of these folks were real you know folk heads they they were working in the folk tradition literally just like learning songs, playing them letting other people learn them passing the basket and so on but I think there was like a pretty large degree of like commercial aspiration going through a lot of that scene mm-hmm. and Bob obviously is the one who has you know emerged from that and kind of turned into this uh, figure far beyond Iconic. Iconic. Th- exactly.
2: there yeah. there was and there wasn't because there's certain figures uh who were very instrumental in that scene who didn't really have like this. Uh, they didn't have this sense of go-getter opportunism that that Dylan had, or maybe just they didn't have the luck. Uh, they kind of became embittered and didn't um, pursue they be- it. They became the Lewin Davis. Yeah, of yeah, exactly. I mean, there's um, uh, what's his name? Ian, the uh, main. Van Ronk mentor. Van Ronk was sort of, mm-hmm. Dave Van Ronk was this figure who was kind of the like head honcho of that scene and I think a big part of the scene and where you can see it's uh, how the punk and DIY sort of DNA springs from it is at that time it seems like the real heads were these people who were all about this classic American folk tradition because mm-hmm. in part it was the opposite of the sort of anodyne, uh, like sanitized mass culture of real building, you know, which it felt like, Oh, this is the real stuff, man. And so of course, as like with the punk scene, you had people who were maybe really influential within that small milieu who also would never dare sign a big contract because it would be like selling out. And uh, Dave Van Ronk was such a man who uh, mm. Bob was able to learn a lot from, but I don't think even given, I don't, he wasn't looking for those opportunities and, and Dylan had his eyes open for them and of course uh, had the, the savvy to uh, take those, those shots.
1: That's the story they tell, at least, you know, we, we, <laughs> right. John Hammond didn't come up to John Hammond, the guy at Columbia who signed Bob, uh, who came from this kind of um, legacy of working with like Alan Lomax and stuff. And he was sort of a presence, you know, in that in that scene at that time, always looking, you know, with a pretty savvy kind of like clearly commercial business interested eye, like, where can I make a buck with these people, came to Bob mm-hmm. and signed him to this contract. Uh, and you know he didn't go to Dave Van Ronk or something. So you know in these later days, Van Ronk, who isn't around anymore, but obviously there's tons of interviews and stuff with him. Um, he can he can talk a little bit about you know, how Bob was doing his thing and, and Van Ronk was doing a different thing. but like we don't know for mm-hmm. sure really like to what extent these people would have really stood behind these. Uh, principles, so to speak, it, right. had Did, they been presented with the same opportunities.
2: Van Rock was also mm. a big, portly, surly type fellow, and Dylan was, you know, <laughs> a cute little uh, chaplain <laughs> doing doing his little dance and being <laughs> being witty and cute. And uh, of course, mm. the people who signed him ended up being like the the hot young studs at their respective record and, and publishing agencies, and in. At least the guy who eventually fully signed him to Columbia, uh, they were you know sharp enough to know this countercultural this this thing that's cool in New York. Like we've got to get somebody on board who's representing that as the much counter-cultural as sells yeah, man. They loved that uh, uh, that stuff too. To, uh, the fellow who who actually signed him, um, Ian, helped me out. What was his name again?
1: Are you talking about John Hammond?
2: Yeah, John Hammond, you know, was a big, (laughs) that's right. John Hammond was a big music head, but he also, I think, was just smart enough to know, like, we've got to get the hottest, youngest version of this scene up on our label. Right. So that's Bob Dylan
0: origins
4: the other um funny thing that i I do think connects to your connecting it to punk and diy is bob acknowledges at least in those early folk days that there are some people who reserve a lot of hater energy for him from all sides including van ronk who when he first meets him uh van ronk has a coveted slot at the gaslight which is kind of like the next step up venue wise after like your basket houses and david rock is like uh why are you asking about the gaslight? Uh are you a janitor? Like right. do you janitor work, <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> Which is a real uh, but then Sigburn. And then but Bob Bob played for him and he's like, Alright, you're in. So <laughs> <laughs> Game Recognized game. Yeah. But uh <laughs>
0: Song songs speak for themselves.
4: Songs speak for themselves. And I I really like that Bob said that from what his, his perspective is, what set him apart was uh his repertoire and uh is Template is hardcore folk songs backed by incessantly loud strumming? <laughs> Was
1: Bob Dylan just like the loudest guy on the scenes) <laughs> Uh, I mean it, it, if you've heard some of those early recordings uh you know uh he his um his voice has always been sort of a a a, a topic of conversation we can say amongst uh fans or not so not so fans um mm-hmm. but yeah he, there there was a lot of yelping and yapping and just real like mm-hmm. the guitar almost sounds like a percussion instrument in some of these mm-hmm. songs like it's there's he's not even bothering with a melody or a tune or anything it's just like as fast as he can get his fingers to go up and down uh that's that's
2: the music that's, that's coming rock, out. You know? honestly, it yes. speaks to his confidence, though. I mean, that's, I think, a sort of byproduct of how sure of himself he was, that he knew this material, he knew this folk stuff so well. And at this point, um, when he was playing those clubs, uh, was so um, fully, like, he, he was such a hardcore acolyte and, and knew all the Woody Guthrie stuff and knew, knew yeah. so much that he kind of just had this conviction that he was going to be able to do it better faster sharper than everyone else and mm. and louder i guess <laughs> <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy he manifested that uh, for himself he secreted it
4: and he's in new york he's hanging out at like the folklore center right and he says it's a place that's like crammed with material like extinct song folios of civil war songs wobbly oh, yeah. journals yep. propaganda pamphlets about the dangers of boozing um he says he's not interested in the madly complicated modern world uh what was swinging topical and up to date for me was stuff like the titanic sinking john henry driving steel john hardy shooting a man on the west virginia line uh and he's just said he said i just thought of mainstream culture
0: as lame as hell and a big trick see this <laughs> and the punk thing there obviously there's a there's one edge to it that's very very cool and can be felt felt of as like progressive in some way of uh, but also there is like a deep reactionary bend to to it you know the the way that uh dylan and also like the the hardcore folk guys and also like the punk guys a generation later would be like you know they're kind of return guys right uh (laughs) you know that they're they're like the modernity is is cursed uh, and a uh, an immoral and decadent, non interesting. We have to go back to a simpler, more uh, more. Uh, I don't know, like a, a fruitful time in the past, uh, and not just a simpler time, like about, a more epic time.
4: Yeah, yeah that's a, about, like, that's a
0: good
2: point. Ste- uh,
0: iron stakes with hammers. A yeah. more epic yeah. time.
2: I think something that's really important about uh, understanding where Dylan's coming from is that he had a certain. Uh, he and those people were really close up until a point where, for some people, um, that that passion for folk music, you know, it he, it lined up exactly with Dylan's until he reached this this point where he saw, well, what's next or what what can I? Mm-hmm. He just had this inkling of like wanting to keep pushing that, and turns out a lot of the folks in that scene. I say folks now because uh, folks in the folk scene. Anyway, uh, they um, <laughs> they were zero interested in that. They as soon as he started doing anything funny with with that form, with that formality, it was like, mm-hmm. well, what's he up to now? But uh, Dylan just never had the any sort of barriers to what mm-hmm. could be done with this stuff. It was the blueprint for him. It wasn't the main it wasn't the whole picture yeah bob was a canny
1: like a, a canny kind of guy sort of an operator to be honest there's i had that quote underlined too in mind molly the, the one about john henry and the titanic uh there's another one a little <laughs> bit later uh where he's talking about hanging out around folk clubs um but then also like what else he's interested in he says um as for myself i had nothing against pop songs but the definition of pop was changing they just didn't seem to be as good as they used to be. I love songs like "Without a Song," <laughs> "Old Man River," "Stardust," and "Hunt <laughs> <laughs> Campdowns." Like "Campdown Races." Why can't we go back to the?
0: <laughs> why can't we go back to the classic jams when, when all when good pop songs were about how lovely it is to walk around the gazebo holding hands with your beloved, with your sweetie baby? Yeah,
1: exactly. But then he <laughs> yeah. also says um, at Rays, uh, where there Rays is like one of his friends, um, where there weren't many folk records. I used to play the phenomenal "Ebb Tide" by Frank Sinatra a lot, and it never failed to fill me with awe the lyrics were so mystifying and stupendous when frank sang that song i could hear everything in his voice death god in the universe everything i had other things to Mm -hmm. do though and i couldn't be listening to that stuff much
3: (laughs) (laughs) so like he's he's got an
1: appreciation for frank at the same time that he's got an appreciation for you know Mm Seeger. but um I, i think he's aware at that time like and what there what, needs, there's a gap that needs can, to be
2: filled yeah and he's there's like a, there's a gap that yeah, needs yeah. to
1: be filled and he's also aware of like what what he can do himself like he can't become frank sinatra overnight but he can sure. become you know this kind of like pete Seeger acolyte overnight and like yeah that's, and, a, that's a foot in the door for him
0: and and reading between the lines you can kind of hear, see him be like i i sense that there is an opening for folk classic folk presented as a pop tingo
2: yeah or or classic or folk sensibilities used as the the engine or the vehicle for yeah. something else that won't come for a little bit for him um, it's still gonna be a minute until he really embraces what he can bring as, as an original uh, voice to that form right.
4: So then he he kind of lays out his initial what he's doing, and then he just starts blogging um, so I just compiled some some bob thoughts slash bob Bob blogs to discuss that's what we love. He says that he was in a tavern where John Wilkes Booth used to drink, and he saw his ghost in the mirror mm-hmm. and called it an ill spirit. <laughs> I don't I don't not believe him like it seems like if anyone can see John Wilkes ghost in the mirror it's Bob Sure Dylan. see
0: uh, you were referencing earlier that this book is like uh, uh, people people dispute it's veracity but if you're writing stories like that it's like Who's doing the fact check of? Uh, well, actually, uh, Bob Dylan could, did not see a ghost in the mirror right, in tavern yeah. because ghosts
1: do not exist,
4: <laughs> or like there wasn't a mirror in that tavern at yeah. that point in the. That
1: 60s, gets four, yeah. four Pinocchios from the uh, yeah. the, the, the Bob Dylan uh, um, politi-fact yeah. checkers.
2: Four Pinocchios and, and one little. Uh, lincoln's hat maybe <laughs>
1: <laughs> i know If bob dylan says that he saw
0: a ghost i believe him uh, me yeah, too sure yes. he's,
4: he's plugged in um he's talking for a little while about you know being born right around the time that world war ii started mm-hmm. and just thinking about the kind of like great men and rulers of history um he he's talking about whether whether they parted their hair in the middle or wore a viking helmet they would not be denied rude barbarians <laughs> stampeding across the earth <laughs>
2: you like
0: that yeah i like that the rude barbarian stampeding across the earth (laughs) yeah that
2: section is really fascinating because he's talking sort of about how when he was born you know coming up in the early 50s basically in the born in 40 what year was he born 41 he comes at this interesting time where uh i think he talks a bit about um how everything seems to be changing an old world is falling apart and a new one is sort of starting up and it seems like he has an interesting perspective about the sort of the rhythms of history. And I think that that's something that really inspires him to um, see himself as somebody who has a chance, has a shot at making a a change at at that time that um, there's sort of due to this period of, of things being kind of malleable, he realizes Mm. like he can change stuff up if he brings his, uh, uh, that old razzle dazzle. The, the times that he
0: he himself just—they dis- are changing. They are changing exactly. They
2: were changing the <laughs> they, times, they were they were changing, and uh, <laughs> he could feel That's a change. Uh, the the change the is coming
0: on. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I would like to. I'm imagining us doing like a, a Bob documentary and just cutting to different talking heads being like the thing about the times <laughs> in, uh, in in this period. Uh, but that is interesting to to have that fascinating that fascination with like political leaders. The movers of history, the great men, sure. uh, as you say, to the to have that sense that you know I might not be a king or a rude barbarian, mm-hmm. but perhaps there's something in my hand. Put a what is the the Jad, David Fair quote? Put a pick in one hand and a guitar in the other with a tiny movement, change the world.
2: There you go. <laughs> yeah, that that's what he was. He was on that on that shit. He was also <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saying uh, there's a, a crazy part where he says that initially he was like talking. To, he said to his dad, uh, I want to go to West Point. I was like, he was like, <laughs> yes. how do you become a general? He was like, I didn't see myself dying in bed. I wanted to die on a battlefield like as a leader of men. And uh, so he didn't end up doing that, but he did the next best thing. The over the Venn
4: diagram of like musicians we read about who want to join the military in some glorious way. It's not it's not there's not a lot of guys. Most most of those guys are trying to avoid it entirely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: But he's he's into that epic uh, narrative thing of being a uh, an important historical figure, someone who shakes things up. And, uh, yeah. I guess a young Bob tillen it's like when you're a little kid and someone asks like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're just like, "A uh, police, a policeman <laughs> or something. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I wonder if he had any bit of, uh, Envy, jealousy uh, for uh, Elvis for actually having the cojones to join the army at, uh, at the height of his
1: career. That's a good point. I mean, he, Bob was a huge Elvis admirer throughout his mm. time. And like he, he to, you know, uh, we don't need to get super deep into it, but like his 1978 tour took place like right after Elvis or right around the time Elvis died. And like Bob has mm. written about like how emotionally affecting that was for him. And so this tour sort of became his like version of an Elvis tour or like in the popular imagination, it, it has become that and uh, it was completely critically lambasted, but it's one of the absolute heights of the,
2: of the yeah. Bob Dylan canon as it's far like as Bob concerned. Dylan at, at Budokan 1978 Budacan. for the ridiculous, uh, like disco slash reggae versions of uh, classic song of the songs you know and love.
0: See, that sounds like something I would actually really enjoy. Yeah. You should throw that. So I'll have to look into that.
4: And the, the other thing about you know thinking. Thinking about these epic dudes of history is like that. He connects that to the concept of a folk song, which is often just about like one kind of great guy. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. These archetypal figures. A very strong guy. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a very strong guy. The, I also liked. Uh, he he talks about. He's he's a big reader. Uh, he's he's he seems to be hanging out a lot in his uh this apartment where he's sleeping at this weird guy's house mm-hmm. and he's just reading. Uh, He says that the Age of Enlightenment to him is like he's it's still excessive like he still feels like it's still around he said voltaire Rousseau, martin luther it was like i knew those guys like they've been living in my backyard <laughs> he knew martin luther <laughs>
1: he's, yeah he's he's such a bullshitter
2: but i love that that part i mean the apartment that he this, this apartment uh, he was saying in ray and chloe's apartment yeah sounds yes. like the craziest place ever it's like he said there's like a back room with all these guns in it guns. and like books about like how to like heal like a broken arm or like someone his leg is bent backwards <laughs> and they had like every possible it was like encyclopedias of everything from history all the great works and like all this obscure shit and he was just able to hang out there uh, and read and uh he asked the guy ray like what what are you gonna do with all these guns and he said ray uh who is not like a violent uh type said um it's for tactical response <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's still a type of guy that exists now Yeah, 100 they uh i believe the, the the funniest quote from ray was he said he, he wasn't really interested in the political problems of the time and he was prone to saying stuff like the real actions in the congo uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this ray which you gotta at least if you live in New York, you got to have one weird roommate like that's got that's part of the like New York City living experience. So I'm glad Bob did that. <laughs> the other bit from this blogging peer that I wanted to make sure I shared is uh, he just goes to the New York Public Library one day and just starts pulling newspapers from the Civil War era just to read them to see what daily life was like. Yep. Uh, so I honestly thought that was pretty cool and kind of
1: like well, a. Can
0: you, can you do that? Can I just go to the? I think you could still do that and just like on micro Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get it on that
1: little like <laughs> a projector kind of machine. That's yeah psycho shit.
4: <laughs> I've noticed that before of like if you read something, you know, from more than, say, like 60 years ago, you just ca- you catch a different vibe, man. <laughs> so I, I like that he was doing that. And the, the only other blog bit that I think it was really funny is that Bob likes bells a lot. He loves the concept of bells from a church bell to the NBC right. chimes, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> the bells and uh, and sound of trains are trains. his favorite sounds. Yes, he's a bells big he's a big
0: trains guy. Big bell head. Big. Tra- Sometimes trains have bells bells on them. You know, it pulls up to a, to a station ding. That's music to my ears. That's probably his favorite sound <laughs> in the world.
2: Hey, I want to read a little section of uh, just in Bob's like um, literary excursions when he's talking about reading Balzac. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. if you don't mind yes. me reading a passage, please. Balzac was pretty funny. His philosophy is plain <laughs> and simple says basically that pure materialism is a recipe for madness. The only true knowledge for Balzac seems to be in superstition. Everything is subject to analysis. Hoard your energy. That's the secret of life. You can learn a lot from Mr. B. It's funny to have him as a companion. Uh, He wears a monk's robe and drinks endless cups of coffee. Too much sleep clogs up his mind. One of his teeth falls out and he says, what does this mean? He questions everything. His clothes cash fire on a candle. He wonders if fire is a good sign. Balzac is hilarious.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I like his attitude of
0: like if you read something or interact with it, it's they become like your friend. and yeah. Now- and you have them inside, yes. So like listening to a podcast, honestly, not even intentionally, <laughs> yes. Oh, I was going to say every artist that we cover on this po- podcast. Afterwards, I'm like, oh yeah, they're my they're my friend, right? Like my my close personal buddy. Uh, uh, I don't know any any of the people mm-hmm. that we've covered. The guy from Aerosmith, sure, Joe, Joe Perry. Joe Perry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's th- that quote that uh, that you just delivered there, Evan, of the Balzac quote. Uh, also brings up a good thing just to touch on briefly which is like Bob's prose style in this book calling Balzac yes. Mr. B is just yeah. so hilarious Like Balzac is hilarious so He's he's got like an almost like a Grandpa Simpson kind of voice like you know tying the onion to your belt as was the style at the time kind of thing <laughs> but it like it, it completely comes off somehow uh, you know uh, it, yep. it's, it's as far away as you can possibly imagine from you know Know, the way the guy was writing at the time that he's writing about the, uh, the way he was
2: talking, ever because you never hear Bob Dylan say this many words ever. So right. it's it's really an incredible <laughs> artifact. Just to, to I mean can't be understated just how much uh, overstated rather the magnitude of what this means. This that a, he wrote a book of his thoughts. You mostly just hear him <laughs> say like uh, one or two, just like kind of craftily made. uh, dismissive little burns at a time
0: that's why the ultimate joke is calling it volume one being like oh yeah there's gonna be more i got more but no. i got more
4: thoughts <laughs> i got more blogs it's funny this this reminds me of a an anecdote that i read it some i think is in the late late 2000, or late aughts uh it was someone touring with who had been touring with bob dylan or like met bob dylan backstage and it was around the time when like iPods really started to popularize and he said something about how like Bob was like backstage with his ear pods in and his hoodie over his head and uh, just being so happy that he had like the shield like he was basically (laughs) like the the the, uh, the earbuds were like don't talk to me the earbuds are in
1: I'm. I'm not speaking to you. He's very big about that. It's
0: very funny imagining like a 70 year old Bob Dylan wearing a hoodie and ha- having earbuds. He's on. a
1: big. He's a big hoodies guy. He
2: he, he always wears the hoodie. Loves if you the ever, hoodie. If you're ever around a Dylan uh, concert and you see like a figure in the distance wearing what looks like maybe two hoodies somehow. Uh, that's probably him.
1: That's going to be Bob. Yeah, I remember the you know he just he he did a, a tour this past fall. Of, you know his, his triumphant return to the stage, and like people on the uh, Expecting Rain message boards, like the you know the heads of the heads, the real psychos on online, were like posting like updates and stuff from even outside of the theater in New York like at the Beacon <laughs> and someone just took like a shaky Facebook video of him stepping off this bus into the into the theater in just like a like completely black like a shadow basically but it was a just <laughs> it was like a hoodie it's <laughs> so always funny a hoodie. 80 great. year old man wa- rocking a hoodie
4: speaking of uh, not being able to get any privacy maybe we can bu- buzz through to the the next section we'll come back to the early 60s at the end at of the, the book yeah yes. I mean
2: but, yeah. but basically long story short he uh gets that job at the gaslight and he's talking to his friend who's saying like oh there's a new uh, club opening it's called uh, the outre and and bobs just says basically like he was talking but i couldn't hear what he was saying because i was just thinking about how i'll never have to play those fucking places ever again yeah (laughs)
4: yes (laughs) do you guys (laughs) maybe
2: to take us into the next segment uh
0: is there any track from the the early dylan days that you think uh Maybe maybe a you know a deeper cut that that we can use to segue. Let's go, uh, uh,
1: baby. Let me fall you down from the first uh, from the first record. That's one that he was uh, a big fan of at that time.
0: All right, this is baby. Let me fall you down off of Bob Dylan.
3: first heard this from uh, Rick Von Schmidt. Shout he out Rick Von Cambridge.
2: Schmidt. <laughs> Rick's a blues guitar player.
3: <laughs> I met him one day in the green pastures of uh, Harvard University.
1: There we go. This is the good shit.
3: Baby, let me follow you down. Baby, let me follow you down. Will I do anything in this god Almighty world if you just let me follow you down?
0: You know, that harmonica does fucking rip. It's great. Baby,
3: can I come home with you? I'm not as good. Yes, I'd do (laughs) anything in this got a mighty world if you just let me
1: come home with you.
2: Classic horny Bob song. (laughs) (laughs) Baby,
3: let me follow you down Baby, let me follow you down And i do anything in this god a world If you just let me follow you down
1: Pretty simple, but, you know, the formula works. Yeah. Guitar Harmonica, voice, weird, like, folky, apocryphal story at the beginning that probably isn't true. Yeah. yeah. That's, you're, you're in business. Well, well I, 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 yeah, I love that he knows that telling
0: the story of how you learn the song is absolutely an essential part of part the song. Of the song you have to put exactly. that on the record. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that there were like, I'm sure there was like some recording engineer being like, why are you talking? Just do the songs. Like, stop. <laughs>
2: That's his, his first uh, album, and it, it was his first studio record. That's with Columbia Records. He was just signed. Uh, basically, John Hammond says, come in and think about what you want to... Uh, he you know, picks out a date. says, think about when you what you want to play when you come into the studio. And it was as simple as that. And that first record is just literally Bob Dylan sitting down and doing his thing with the mic on. Yep. It really set the template for how he would expect to be able to record songs and <laughs> records for the for, for better or for worse. Better
1: or for worse. Exactly. It was also, should be noted, a complete commercial disaster, the first record. Didn't sell yeah, for sure. shit and he almost got dropped hey. by
2: Columbia. <laughs> but John Hammond saw something and with with it, he just had a premonition that the you know, this guy's got charisma and he's uh, got it. He's got the Moxie. Yeah. He's, and so uh, he hot. was right. He's hot. Well, you t- it
0: takes a record, uh, a record or two to prime people to be like, "No, you actually do like this. You just don't
1: know." Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially with Bob, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a pattern that would repeat well, itself uh, many times throughout his career. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs>
4: Well, yeah. To from uh, you, you don't know that you'll like me, but you will. To now, everyone likes me, and I'm absolutely miserable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we meet up with Bob in the late '60s. Uh, he obviously has completely s- swept the world with his his uh, his messages, and he is not happy. Um, it sounds like. I mean, th- this is actually maybe my favorite part of the book is because he is just f- so full of uh, uh, vinegar about this still after all these years. Yes. He's saying the, the Beatles were in India, America <laughs> was wrapped up in a blanket of rage, <laughs> and I was determined to put myself beyond the reach of it all. Mm-hmm. I was a family man now. <laughs> so, this is he has gotten married, he's have, has, had children, he's living in Woodstock, he had had the motorcycle accident, and he's basically retreating from the world at the time when apparently we needed him. The most, uh, I don't, I don't know how you guys f- <laughs> feel about but, that. I mean,
2: what happens in between that first part of the book and this second part is, um, I mean, it's hilarious that that's what he left out. You know, yeah, he's, he re- skips yes. over the
1: entire Bob Dylan legend.
2: Yada yada yada. What, what he leaves yeah. out is the part where he goes from making that song to making uh, everything else, like that Rolling made the 60s, like Rolling Stone and uh, all the rest, and becoming this. Uh, you know, totally transforming himself into kind of this like a uh, magician type figure who, uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, completely exploded what you could expect from the folk format and injected everything he learned from, uh, Rambo, from, from, uh, the beats from, from all these other influences mm. and from his own mind and just made it into something that was, uh, much more basically invented modern rock music. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but you know who's a big fan of Bob Dylan in that era is uh, Lou Reed. It's like you wouldn't have oh, yeah. Velvet Underground without the stuff he did in the late sixty or the mid to late sixties, mm. mid sixties, firmly actually. Yeah, and uh, that's just what you don't get, he doesn't even spend any time talking about because it ruined his life briefly. The always, I think for me, at
0: least the thing to keep in mind with Dylan is like how he was basically the first to do everything. Even if, if the formula gets like, he's always like all every album. When you look back at it, it comes out like a year before you remember if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's that great uh, quote. I don't have it verbatim, but he talks about, Picasso, and he's just thinking about Picasso. Just turned, you know, seventy-five or something. Uh, and married his uh, like hot model girlfriend, twenty-nine-year-old yeah, like mm-hmm. girlfriend. Like or this, something. this guy hadn't let life pass him by, and he like had totally upended the world of of art. And Dylan says, you know, I wanted to be like that. I wanted to do that, <laughs> and this is but that was before he actually ended up doing that. Um, you know, in with those records, bringing it all back home, and so forth. And um, then, basically, the fallout of that of him actually succeeding is he loses his privacy. He loses any sense of uh, just being a regular guy, and mm. it it's like a fight for his life to live any semblance of a normal existence with his family. Um, yeah. And, and that's yeah, where we find stalking him. him. Yeah. People literally, and they moved to Woodstock and it's, these creeps are coming up to his door. People are like invading his house and then falling
1: off the roof and breaking their leg and then suing him oh because God. they fucking oh broke God. his, their leg at his property. <laughs> it's it, insane it's shit. So, it's so cursed. That's like a scam. If you can pull it yeah. off.
2: Yeah. I think there's a quote in the, in the section, uh, titled new morning which is you know titled for the the record new morning he says you know i knew that i made records or i made songs of like that were most influential and most original and i didn't know if i would ever do it again and i didn't care i just wanted to have like a white picket fence and some roses in the back that would be nice and uh that was my deepest dream he does not Want to be this uh, outlaw figure that the now actually existent, popular sort of uh, underground, the, the burgeoning underground music scene, um, which is becoming more and more popular and would morph into you know the flower power sixties and whatnot. Uh, he he has totally it's passed him by. Like he's finds it basically disgusting, hates being associated with it.
4: Yeah, which. I mean, if it makes sense if you think about his earlier attitude, which is like, I think that the problems of today are just, you know, kind of, they're not for me. And then his fame puts him in the same current as the world interest. And he's like, no, no, I don't want, like, stop asking me to, like, lead a march on the Capitol. Right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not your guy. I'm not the one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean,
2: just like what happened with the folk uh, scene, it, it was, they were parallel perfectly up to a point like just like Mm -hmm. he was parallel to the folk scene up until their uh, sort of formality became something that was totally alien to him. Uh, The same thing happened with the, with what he would do with those other records, his most famous records in the sixties, where he kind of accidentally gives birth to everything that we think of as like the, the origins of psychedelia and, and, Mm -hmm. and underground rock. And unfortunately, yeah. that was never his intention.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, he's he the, those first couple of years, you know, the folk stuff, and then the you know the explosive rock records are like so so like sweet generis, like once in a generation kind of thing. That and, and you know he got so big so quickly that like it it fixed this. This very solid, firm, you know, identity or image of him in the entire world's conscious, basically, and mm-hmm. like he—he he was that person. He—he were—he was those people at those times. But he was—he mm-hmm. was much more than that, and you know, would certainly go on to to illustrate that over the the course of his career. And so, like, people, as soon as he like takes a step back from that and tries to do anything other than what they're expecting from him. Like with a record like John Wesley Harding, for instance, which is his first kind of like hard left turn after the big rock records, after the um, mm-hmm. the motorcycle accident, um, people just start fucking like getting pissed and, and hating on him. And and John Wesley Harding was not <laughs> like that. People people dug that record when it came out in Nashville Skyline, the following one after that, uh, uh, you know, a little bit as well. Uh, but by the time he gets to like self-portrait, which comes out in 1970, uh, the same year as New Morning, a little bit before New Morning, in fact, um, people are people are just like fucking done with them. The Rolling Stone interview for, <laughs> for self-portrait starts a, a Grill Marcus review. Uh, starts uh, what What the fuck is this shit? Basically, <laughs> and it just goes on to lambasta And so, like, he doesn't deserve. Like, what What does anyone want? Like, you know, pe- celebrities yeah. are always complaining about like reading their mentions and shit on Twitter. Like, Bob was one of the only guys in the entire world who had mentions at this time, and it was just his, filled. Yeah, his
4: mentions were coming to his exactly. house exactly, <laughs> and it was just filled with
1: the worst vibes imaginable. So, like, you know, you yeah. gotta you gotta bail out on that.
2: That speaks to how powerful he was. I mean, he just came in so so hard, so right at the right time with stuff like uh, the times they're changing. We can't gloss over that. I mean, these songs that did have an extreme and lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, these songs that actually, like I said, again, I mean, parallel with the, the zeitgeist so firmly, but Dylan is so often, he's so often parallel in his early career with what's hot, but he's never actually trying to, he's always just going along his own way and so when when that parallel gets broken up or shifted by just what he decides to do next people lose their minds and that happens over and over
1: yeah it's a pattern that repeats itself he's an entertainer and a performer he's not a revolutionary or politician and that's what people didn't understand and you know that frankly that's what a lot of people still don't understand even to this very day so what what's next in the narrative?
4: Well, he's upset for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the best is he, he's listing all of all of this pressure and et cetera. It sounds and like his a response, list of grievances. His responses—it yes. was all making me want to throw up. <laughs> uh, and he he remembers being introduced at a festival a few years before. Uh, it, it was basically a uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan, take him, he's yours." <laughs> and he he goes, "What a crazy thing to say! Take him, he's yours." Like he's he is over it and that he so he does a classic thing i think in the relatively early days of being a famous musician of like starting to play with the press and like he said For example, like he went to a department store with a bottle of whiskey poured over his head and started acting weird. Uh, He at one point said he was going to give all the music up and go to college. (laughs) 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 Like he starts kind of trolling, which I think is a pretty understandable thing to do in his position. And to be the funniest, he said, I would even record an entire album based on Chekhov short stories. Critics thought it was autobiographical that was fine. So
2: that, that's actually <laughs> talking later about, uh, that's blood on the tracks. Gl- yeah. Glosses over it, but that's blood on the tracks, m- uh, several years later, but the, the real troll albums were self-portrait and to some extent, Nashville skyline, even new morning. These were all records mm. where he basically, uh, did the opposite of what he uh, surmised was what people wanted from him, uh, on purpose to sort of just shake the scent of being a, magical uh hero to all these fucking freaks and was very yeah. successful in doing so pissed off it, everybody yeah well, he was successful in pissing them off but it, it's a real case of uh when the prophecy fails in many ways because so many of the <laughs> bought into dylan as this uh Svengali then uh kind of just went not even more nuts just <laughs> trying to tie themselves into knots figuring out well how does this fit into what i thought he said on it's all over now baby blue about the coming apocalypse or whatever the hell they they thought he was talking about
4: (laughs) then this section is also i should say as i said before it was framed by this interaction with uh archibald mcleish uh who is writing a like a musical slash stage play slash theatrical mess based on the devil and daniel webster and he's like he basically called bob up and was like can you make music for it and it sounds like bob did in a very sort of painful awkward not not well good collaborated way and that play was called scratch and it closed two days after it opened and i actually don't (laughs) think it opened with any i don't think it actually had any of the music in it when it was on stage, yet. yeah, the,
0: the, that, that the, was the a, a disaster.
2: The origin of the the record "New Morning" was uh, largely comprised of songs which Dylan tried his best to to oblige Archibald McLeish to give those songs a shot. These ideas for songs for a play for a musical that uh, he had suggested some titles to Dylan. Dylan basically was <laughs> like, "This play sounds like so fucking depressing. I I, I don't really have anything to." do with this or any, i don't it just seemed weird to him but he was like okay yeah. <laughs> and uh ended up kind of scraping the dregs of that experiment together to create new morning a record which ian and i have gotten a lot of flack for yeah long time listeners
1: will know uh we fucking hate
2: well we just don't okay. think it's that good because for the i would say for that reason knowing the context that it's really i'm i'm i think we're both much happier to listen to uh Uh, self portrait -portrait, which is a Mm -hmm. full on troll just like uh, dylan just goofing off and playing stuff that's fun for him hanging out with the boys this other record (laughs) new morning which ultimately
0: that's what it's about
2: Uh, it literally is new morning just has this kind Uh, of what is music but having fun with your friends yeah it ought doing to weird be.
1: Paul Simon covers and singing about Little Sadie in like three separate songs. This is this is all real. This is actually on Self
2: Portrait. <laughs> um, yeah, New yeah. Morning. It's interesting that he includes that as um, a whole chapter, kind of surrounding it yeah it's
1: one of the main kind of uh like highlight points in this this book to me it's like and i I would assume evan kind of feels the same way like everything that isn't the early 60s stuff is the most interesting part of chronicles to me and and Mm. like i'm really like we talked about we joked a little bit about him like just yada yadaing over the entire you know fucking legend of himself but like i'm really glad he did that because like there has been so much ink spilled over those like Four years, basically, over the last sixty years, and we've seen it from every conceivable angle. At this point, it's like, you know, I, I for for introductory folks, you know, it makes sense that, that that would be the stuff that you focus on to start with. But like, you got to get past that at some point, and so it's really cool that Bob actually spends some time, like, kind of dissecting his own experience and his own personality, his own whatever. Uh, you know, after after the highlight, uh, you know, kind of sections of his career. Um, and I think I'm mm-hmm. implying, too, that that music speaks for itself. Sure. Yeah, totally.
0: New, New Morning, I got ex- it. I do have to explain. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah,
0: Yeah.
2: yeah it, honestly, a little bit. But I mean, New Morning has some good songs on it. Uh, the Man and Me. All right. What's a good song from New Morning? The Man and Me. The man and Me. Great song. Oh, The Man and Me is off that. Yeah. That's
0: oh, right. great. I love that song. Obviously, a, 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 a basic take because it's off the uh, Big Lebowski uh, soundtrack. But uh, this is a really uh, stellar song. a great. That's a great, uh, great
2: song. One of his best. Uh, if I if we really wanted to be authentic here, we would play "If Dogs Run Free" uh, to give you a taste of what is not so so awesome about New Morning.
1: I think the Man in Me is a more pleasant listen. On we
2: don't need to subject people <laughs> to much pain right now. Or my least favorite song, "Sign on the Sign Window." Sign on the window. Yeah.
0: i really love the production on this song uh it feels very lush but also intimate uh you know kind of how clear and separated the um the like or- the organ sounds are, right. and you can you know hear every note of the of each guitar pluck. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's yeah. a great sound. And like th- this is a great example of like why this record is weird. Is because like half this record is great, kind of just like pop songs like this that are just like immaculately constructed. And the other half is yeah, it's if dogs run free, it's Winter winterlude, it's father of night, which are these weird songs that he constructed for this McLeish play that never went anywhere. And so it's just a complete like it's not it's two great tastes that don't taste great together this is not this is not a chocolate <laughs> you'd, peanut butter situation this is chocolate and
0: you, you'd fish sauce you'd almost rather actually have the full album of the weird songs exactly. for the weird play yeah. so of them yeah. just like sprinkled through so that at least they could be se- segregated together and be like well if you want to hear what this play was going to be like just listen to that right. out <laughs> right
3: a reeling from my
0: Choir it's very Such lush. a good vibe You like this song Molly?
3: I do
4: I mean it is It is funny Like it is All of a sudden The 70s You know Yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like it just
1: happened 1970 this, 69, with a 69
4: like They really killed it dead yep. They're like We're done To get through
0: <laughs> We're, the, protest music, we're leaving that behind. Now, just vibes. Yep.
2: Well, this, this song, I think, is actually one of the best songs on New Morning for another reason that ties into the content of the, the book is that it really feels like a song that's about his personal experience at this time of being a family man. I mean, that line mm. about, you know, the man in me will hide sometimes to keep from being seen. Cause that's because he doesn't want to be turned into some machine. It really is what he's saying in this chapter about, I don't yeah. want to be part of somebody's ideology. I want to spend time with my wife and kids. I That's just want to really be a, like that. I just want to be a, a classic man.
4: A classic man. <laughs> a
2: classic style man.
0: All right. We're, we're coming up on the, on the end of this one. You can fade it out. The nice. man and me. The man and me. Great song. All right. What's next, Molly?
4: Well, let's let's head to the kind of the last, uh, the, the, the the latest temporal zone of the book, which is the late '80s, uh, where he's again feeling a little burnt out. Uh, he's in the middle of an extremely long tour with Tom Petty, and he's playing some sideshows with the Grateful Dead, and he's feeling that it wasn't my moment in history anymore. And uh, my favorite Turner phrase, perhaps in my in the entire book, my haystacks weren't tied down, and I was beginning to fear the wind. <laughs> 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 who who among us hasn't sometimes felt like your haystacks weren't tied down?
0: I mean, it takes it takes a uh, a wise person to know when it's not your moment. When it's not your moment. When it's not your moment. That's one of the the I would say the the things that are always the most tragic when you're when we're reading some of these memoirs, especially like big rock guys who are who are like. Continuing to uh, to I don't know to to hump hump the moment and try to <laughs> yeah. try to make it theirs and it's like I'm sorry dude you're you're five years past yeah, is it, what what you're selling has had an expiration date yeah, Stop not yeah, pumping that you're whole, completely uh,
2: the whole passage yeah. I don't know if you have it Molly uh, but uh, there's this probably the most harrowing passage in the whole book is this one where he describes the feeling of being of just knowing that he's out that he it's that it's over uh yes yeah. uh, the the fires burnt out um he talked about feeling like uh It's like carrying a package of heavy, rotting meat. Yeah, I've got it.
1: (laughs) I've got it right here. I've written and recorded so many songs, but it wasn't like I was playing many of them, playing them like when he was playing them live. Uh, I think I was only up to Mm -hmm. the task of about 20 or so. The rest were too cryptic, too darkly driven, and I was no longer capable of doing anything radically creative with them. It was like carrying a package of heavy, rotting meat. I couldn't understand where they came from. The glow was gone, and the match had burned right to the end. I was going through the motions. Try as I might, the engine wouldn't start. Not Beeps. great. That's not great, Bob. Uh, but Poor also, guy. but also, I get it. You know,
4: it's been a long time of grinding.
2: Yeah, you're allowed to take a break. Yeah.
4: Well, not not Bob.
2: Yeah, he, that's the thing. He he, unlike these other guys who maybe like try try and try and then they just uh, pass away. He just kept trying and kept not passing away and uh, kept. just being in the public eye, looking haggard and feeling really bad. And uh, he worked and worked through it until a moment of divine inspiration where he's playing with the Grateful Dead, you know, fascinating anecdote. I don't think he actually goes into depth on in the book where he wanted to join the Grateful Dead as like officially (laughs) and they put it to a vote and it uh, I think came down to Phil Lesh voting no and then he didn't actually fully join the <laughs> poor Bob. but but he guess, wanted to I mean
0: it makes sense that would really really shift the vibe of your band you know? yeah <laughs> he and he,
2: it, it was probably the right choice but he and uh Jerry Garcia were very close and um he mm-hmm. did play shows with them and i believe it was during that the rehearsal period for those shows was it that or the or petty. It was one of those. Yeah, it was after petty,
1: of, which was eighty six, and then so we were during the dead, with the dead, in eighty
2: seven. He ends up at this uh, uh, little jazz club and just by chance walks in. Just has the feeling that he should come in. Orders a gin and tonic, and he sees this little jazz combo playing, and it kind of just reinvigorates this whole creative spirit. He remembers this arca- It's like arcane, weird alternate style of like playing with the, Off like a what does he say like an odd rather than even number scheme. He does not go into like what this means. Okay, yeah.
4: I was going to ask if either of you knew what the fuck he was talking about.
1: Lord knows. Yeah, no idea. He
4: goes. He goes on for like three pages about this like numerical system that is different than whatever he was doing, and it changes everything about the way he notorious
0: Part of this book, sort of. Because I I feel like I've I've heard this before about. The, the dylan number scheme yeah like if anyone
4: yeah. if anyone listens and knows what's happening we'd be we'd be all ears for sure
0: yeah send us an email if you understand the dylan man yeah we don't well, what we ends up, up happening
2: i don't think anybody does but but what happens <laughs> is that he uh feels like the winds back in his sails and he goes back into those rehearsals and you might not know it, uh, listening to Dylan and the Dead, the awful compilation of <laughs> Dylan and Dead shows, but some of those shows are very good, um, or at least have moments of being good. And um, it was kind of this transformative, strange experience where uh, he he got a little bit of that energy back and and realized, I guess what he's trying to say is that he found a way to perform these songs, perform any song in his catalog. Where it didn't actually have to be emotionally charged, he was able to find some other way to um, feel inspired playing them. That was mm-hmm. uh, it seems to have just kind of kept him going for years to come, uh, and I think has something to do with the weird way that he phrases lyrics ever since then.
4: <laughs> yeah, because I have to say, my I've never seen Bob live. My parents saw him at, at the fairgrounds in Vermont, maybe. 10 plus years ago now, and came back. I was like, How was it? They were like, Great. I could barely tell which song what song was, what song. was being played yep. <laughs> and certainly not from the first several chords which that sounds like it's a pretty common viewing experience at this point now for Bob Dylan. That's how he does it. Absolutely. Yeah, you
2: got to get real deep in what a freak. It before you can start. I think Ian and I at this point we can pretty much, we have a pretty good um time of, of like <laughs> we can we can know what song he's playing within I would say 30 seconds but that took a lot of you guys ask.
0: are you guys like dylan tapers do you like go go on and uh you know trade no no we're not from like this year we're
2: very grateful for the people who do that and there's a lot of good ones on youtube these uh, absolutely uh, monk-like p- figures who i know nothing about but they are super dedicated never-ending bob fan is mm. one um that's just one that comes to mind <laughs> yeah. every week. With any every any week. artist
0: with a taper culture, I have I have nothing but respect respect for. Oh, there's yeah. a it's deep a, one. A you should
2: see
1: some of these forums and stuff, like the Expecting Rain forums, which is like the number one Bob <laughs> fan site online. Like they basically have like every single show that he has performed since like like archived in seventy four. Yeah. yeah, it like 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 uh, archived and like like listed and available for download in Flack and MP three, and <laughs> it, it's like in it's it's in it's like a it's like a I don't know, like a uh, uh, a lib- like a like a great library or something. Like the Library
2: of Alexandria. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Bob. but it's just the Library of
1: Alexandria. This, of this forum that looks like it's straight out of 1998.
2: It's a another magical, Another site. great thing about that is that you know it's it's so common to you th- when you think about the dead and their tape culture, and you you know like basically what to expect when you see like bootlegs of that. It's going to be like some psychedelic image, and then the date of the show, but for the Bob bootlegs that exist, there are hundreds. It's made by Bob Dylan fans who do this. So the covers are, and the the choices of graphic design are wild, fantastic. <laughs> and, and the titles we've we've had a great time on our shows, like going through these titles. Like off top of the head, some of the best ones are like usually awful combinations of obscure Dylan lyrics, like positively uh, West Fifty Second Street. Mm-hmm or uh,
1: <laughs> absolutely what, sweet absolutely sweet California
2: absolutely sweet California <laughs> positively was 50 seconds one where he's playing Japan it just says sensei in like a really <laughs> like a, a font that seems racist <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> oh god uh,
2: <laughs> like you get
0: like the tape looks like it's wearing a kimono it ordered out of the sharper edge. yeah exactly
1: yeah magnificent some of the greatest folk artists of the last um you know half century these people that put these together god god bless a lot of people
4: well yeah so um evan you met yeah you mentioned this kind of uh Revival, based on this mysterious number, I, I basically just sounds like he sees the
2: Matrix. Yes, that's right. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, time. he's
1: seeing, he's seeing the green code. He,
2: he also sees the, just the guy performing in the jazz club. I think he he's just mo- moved on a deep level about how that guy performs vocally, and mm-hmm. it, it seems like maybe from what I can guess that it's like a way of singing that's more. Um, it's det- maybe detached in a certain way that he's got uh, like a bit of a remove from the lyrics. It's not about bringing the house down emotionally, yeah. it's about like having this posture of knowing who you are and singing yeah. songs and he- becoming a big, a big, great guy.
4: Yeah, becoming exactly. one
2: of the realizing that you know, remembering who the fuck he is type of thing. Yeah,
4: please allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Bob. Uh, he, he said he, yeah, he was, his repertoire was shrinking and and raw meat like uh, in the next four shows after he discovers this new way of playing he plays 80 different songs no repeats and then he's immediately like okay guys let's book 200 shows oh, and I want that in the next year and I want them all I want to come back to all the same places yep. so that the people who see me the first time won't see me the second time and maybe younger people will come the second time because I'm tired of my audience he says uh, my audience came to stare and not participate. He was um, tired of the guys with their arms folded, mm-hmm. maybe gently nodding their heads. Exactly. And then, of course, his tour manager was like, that's not how booking tours works. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I appreciate the enthusiasm, Bob. Uh, after that point, then he has an... I actually don't... Do you know what happens to his hand? He injures his hand.
1: Pretty no, it's, it's unclear. It, 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 it gets <laughs> better at some point. It, like, it should be noted, this entire section, like maybe none of it ever even happened. Uh, happened. Yeah, it, well, <laughs> of, I think half,
2: of... a version of it happened. It's psychically,
1: sure. yeah. Uh, but, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that, as you were saying that that sounds like that he has kind of a Grandpa Simpson vibe, that does sound very much like the Onion story of being like, <laughs> I should I should mention that my hand was severely injured at the yeah, time. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the t- yeah, exactly. The and a, three's thing is There's just... this difficult period where he, he gets his juice back, his sauce, uh, and he, he's goaded once more, and then... (laughs) Then he uh, breaks his hand horribly, mangles it, he says, to the bone, and it needs to recover. Oh, God. Yeah. He's like, it didn't even feel like my hand.
4: on top of that, his freaking sailboat sinks. Oh, no. He had like a 63-foot sailboat, and he's like... You know, it's sailboat, take your leave it, but it seemed to represent something yeah. uh, more sinister than my boat is sank. And this is, of course, one of the favorite bits of introducing is the point at which the musician's life turns from music to business. And Bob Dylan <laughs> takes that quite literally. He starts fantasizing about leaving music behind, getting into business. And what does he do? He calls someone who puts him in touch with a seller of businesses someone who's like yeah I got so, I got a wide portfolio of businesses what are you interested in Sugarcane, trucks and tractors a wooden leg factory from North Carolina <laughs>
1: he, that's that's the one he would be interested in the wooden leg factory in North Carolina yeah, <laughs> yeah that's I mean
0: that sounds like something from a, a classic folk song. <laughs>
4: Just imagine yeah. you're working at the wooden leg factory, and then one day you're called to an all hands meeting, and your boss is like, "Nothing's gonna change, but we are owned by Bob Dylan. <laughs> <Bob Dillon>. Dylan
0: <Dillon. laughs> leg works. If you see Bob Dylan in the in the wooden leg factory, do not be alarmed. <laughs> he is also your boss.
2: <laughs> yeah, like a like a wooden leg. Yeah.
4: <laughs> that that's his mindset in this like late '80s period with the ups and downs, and then he also he details the process of recording "Oh Mercy." in new orleans yes. with the, the producer daniel lenoir dan dan, uh, dan
1: dan lan.
2: lan as he's
1: known around and, these parts
2: you might know him from U uh, u2 he recorded a lot of u2 records yeah he's a, he's a an, lot of an Eno
1: disciple he was in um he was there in slain with Eno when they were cutting uh, the unforgettable fire and uh, bob was actually mm. there in slain also and like there was a whole thing that's it, a lot of lot of deep lore. Well, there,
2: yeah, there but, is that part where Bono comes to dinner at his house. Yeah, in the yes. book, <laughs> it sounds like
4: when Bono has an idea that like it's pretty much impossible to change his mind about it or like get him off the like Bono uh, doing things train. Yes,
1: he's very Bono's very um, uh, perhaps uh, too uh, sincere and hard on sleeve kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> there is, you got to draw the line somewhere.
4: But I I got to say I didn't love. I I did not find the process of recording Oh Mercy very interesting because it just sounded like it was a weirdly... frustrating like process of getting all on the same page with all the like studio musicians and the producer and Bob mindset which is obviously different than it literally every mindset on earth right what, what was your guys's take on yeah, this I mean,
1: this this section I think is is particularly geared for insane people for like us. us yeah okay like what what is <laughs> for the heads that's yes.
4: why that, that's why we're having you yeah. on
1: what is notorious about Bob's studio uh, work and you know kind of way of recording records I think as Evan mentioned earlier is like he just Bob just likes to get into the studio and cut the songs and get out like he he, he just wants mics in the room and make the record and go and and what you know what is recorded to tape is the record that's it Daniel Anwar is mm-hmm. the opposite of that he's a he's he uses the, the studio as an instrument itself and so he's big into mm. overdubs and backing tracks and going back and forth and back and forth and cutting the same kind of songs again and again and again and that's just completely contra Bob's way of recording music and
0: Frank, <laughs> so how'd they get hooked up together? Well,
2: I think like, what Bono. happened was uh, Bono, Bono. Bono talked to Bob, and you know they were talking over dinner in, in Malibu, I guess, about uh, what Bob was working on. Did he have new songs? This one, this was around '88 or some or so '89, and um, bon, uh, Bob showed Bono these songs that were kind of the most recent stuff he'd recorded and written in a long time. He had taken kind of a long break from writing. And he had the germs of uh, a lot of songs from that would end up on Oh Mercy, and Bono, uh, God bless him, uh, encouraged Bob to make a record with this and um, talk to him about Daniel Lanois. And I think Dylan was in an open-minded state, having been uh, recently burnt out, reinvigorated, had his, uh, and then,
0: jazz and math epiphany. Yeah.
2: Right, and, and it should and, be noted he's coming off
1: like the absolute like like low of the low of his career. Like 86, 87 is like the nadir of the nadir. For yeah, Bob. let's name so like some very, albums. Empire yeah, uh, <laughs> esque. we've got Knocked Out, Loaded, and we've got the immortal Down in the Groove, which is maybe yeah. the single worst record of all time.
2: I think uh, pretty pretty certainly his worst. Yeah. Uh, but so he's in a uh, fragile
1: state of mind and maybe ready to try some things, try things a little differently and, and kind of let a, let a new energy and vibe into his world uh, with the hopes of getting some different results, I think.
2: So they, they meet Daniel, he meets Daniel Lanois uh, down in New Orleans where the, he's recording with, um he's recording the album Yellow Moon with the Neville Brothers, uh, a record which actually has two Dylan songs on it. And it's a really good record. I mean, Lanois is like such a, committed such a serious self-made um, uh, sort of auteur uh, producer, the opposite of Steve Albini. He, this is a guy who is <laughs> a capital P producer of records and you know believes very heavily in the artists that he's working with to a fault. Like He wants it to be mm. the best it can possibly be and he wants to throw all the bells and whistles in it, uh, whatever works to make a song really sing. Dylan feels um, like this guy's a straight shooter and basically likes what he hears with the Neville brothers. I think he said like, now that's a record when he heard that. And, um, <laughs> so he's willing to take a chance with him. And uh, then what's described in this Oh Mercy section is the laborious, frustrating uh, work of, of Dylan butting heads with Daniel Lanois, of them trying to make this record happen and of Dylan kind of having a, Sort of creative um, renaissance of of sorts, discovering a new palette, a new way for him to make records. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he ended up learning a lot from those experiences, from that experience and from later working on Time Out of Mind with Daniel Lanois. Before he would break away and make his own records, from that point on, under the pseudonym Jack Frost as the producer, He's just <laughs>
0: Bob well, I, I feel like sometimes for the uh, sometimes the best thing for somebody who's like a superstar nobody ever says no to is having somebody to say no, not like that. We're we're gonna have to move on to the 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 end part of the 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 chronicle narrative, uh, but in a second but uh what's what's a good one off of oh mercy to uh to play us into the uh the next the last part of the the show the best
1: one off oh mercy is actually not a song that made it onto oh mercy a song called (laughs) series of dreams which was recorded during these sessions sounds like a u2 song from that era incredible song one of like bob's all-time greatest songs lanois thought that should be the title of the record first song on the album and bob completely canned it Great. Okay, so, bu- so series of what? Series of Dreams.
0: Yes, this does immediately sound like a level of production
1: I'm very unfamiliar <laughs> yeah. with. in a, uh, a, <laughs> a Bob Dylan song. Exactly. And Bob is sort of notorious for, uh, certainly towards his later days, like deliberately cutting the best song from the record and just like not putting it on there. This <laughs> is the, the primate of that.
0: As as Molly uh, was saying about the man in Mia being like, now it's the 70s. It is funny to like. I know this is
2: late 80s, but to like put this on and be like, this is what the 80s sounds yep. like. <laughs> Honestly, this is a record that I feel like sounds like the 90s uh, coming up because if you listen to anything from Empire Burlesque, now that's the sound of the 80s. You get all of the 80s in there. Too much. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, I like that insistent bass. Yeah.
3: Another
1: I mean, it's still undeniably Dylan.
3: Yeah.
1: I mean, the vocal and the the delivering stuff, hundred percent bomb. But like musically, the the
0: guitar strumming, Another you know, even the the way of the playing of the guitar, even if it is that kind of a. It does have that U2 like sense to it. It's still yeah, very it's much a Dylan great. guitar drum. Yeah. Oh my god, that's like soaring cool.
1: yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like that
3: galloping. And the
4: I like this a lot. <laughs> yeah. You like this a lot? Yeah. It rocks. This is my vibe. I'm from another world.
0: All right, this one's a little a little longer than the other one, so I don't think we're going to listen to yeah, that. No, uh, it's quite long. Thing, but that's
2: y- Bob Dylan,
0: Series of Dreams. Series of Dreams. It is a good name,
2: too. Yeah, it would have been name. a perfect what name is for what a, a record. I mean, it's a shame that they... I mean, Oh Mercy, okay. But uh, Series of Dreams, <laughs> better name for the record.
0: Yeah, 100%. So where does the Chronicle end?
4: It ends at the beginning, man. I mean... <laughs> Full circle. You know, the he basically he we're we're back in new york but then he's also remembering you know his childhood and like his process of like uh, gradually moving out of the house getting more interested in folk music like really studying it of course Having the requisite folk haters who are, you know, come in and are like, you're doing it wrong. Or like, you think you think you're good enough to play, you know, Woody Guthrie music or whatever. I think maybe that's the the most important bit of the end is like kind of showing the origin story of him getting into Woody Guthrie, who he said in the beginning of the book was the first the first person he wrote a song for right. mm-hmm.
2: was Woody Guthrie. That song, Song for Woody, is, I think Bob sort of thinks of it and refers to it as kind of the first real song that he ever wrote. And, um, yeah. I mean, Dylan was so obsessed with Woody Guthrie uh, after hearing his solo records that he basically decided he would become Woody Guthrie. And then he did this. (laughs) He like went to New York, went to Jersey uh, where was it Jersey where Woody was in a a sort of sanatorium and um, in ill health, but surrounded by kind of people who were out of their minds. It was very sad. And um, he met Woody, his absolute idol, just meeting the God of music for you. You get to meet him. You get to be friends Mm -hmm. with him, and then basically, I think as Dylan puts it, like it was as if it was time for him to take up that job that is now him his thing to do. Is just yeah, came this guy who he idolized, um, and that is uh, crazy and uh, (laughs) really uh, moving when he describes it in the book.
4: It, you could, it could end up being something out of a horror movie where it's like the young folk <laughs> singer is at his hospital bed being like, I'm going go to become to, you. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to become you. Go to sleep now. <laughs> but,
2: that song "Song for Woody is, is just such a, a beautiful and heartfelt song. Uh, one of the best songs. Um, I mean, you kind of just listen to that and you get the whole story there, right there because his feeling for Woody Guthrie is so strong, so palpable in, in those lyrics.
4: Well, I I did want to leave. You know, now that we're we're back at the beginning, is there anything else from either of you guys that you like? You know, wanted to discuss about the book or anything that you felt about like the book versus Bob Dylan's actual life career music.
1: You know, uh, I think as with everything with Bob, you got to take it all with a grain of salt. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he uh, he he's a man who. Uh, has been known to tell some tall tales from from time Mm -hmm. to time. And so looking at this as any sort of like standard, you know, um, uh, straightforward autobiography, you're going to go insane. But if you take it as, you know, sort of like spiritually true and, uh, you know, offering some texture uh, and behind Uh the scenes look of what, uh, you know, this story that we all know and love... Uh, I think that's where it that's where it shines that's where it comes through for us and you know uh here's hoping for Chronicles volume 2 3 4 <laughs> 9 ten, as many more as he wants I will I will fuck the them
4: Maybe they're in the vault. Like uh, maybe he's been working on them the whole time and it's like you guys are going to eat really good after I'm gone. Yeah. 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 The Disney vault.
2: <laughs> uh I I really t- my takeaway from the book is uh Largely just how much I love these, uh, just the way that he writes and the prose. And it's so uh, interesting. It's never boring when I, the way that he actually talks about these super specific moments and memories as if they just happened, whether or not they mm-hmm. actually happened like that. It's kind of secondary to one's enjoyment of the text, I think. And um, it's really weird and fascinating that he picks these, episodes the ones that he does pick uh to expound upon in in the book because they're not what you would expect uh, which is you know in its own way typical of Dylan to just do the opposite of what you want him to do classic but uh, the the ending of the of the book it, I just think is terrific like the basically he talks again about being signed to uh Columbia and having basically his innermost dream from when he was a boy come true within the space of like what a year and a half moving to New York and he's sitting in a a diner and he uh, he's being served coffee by a beautiful waitress and he says uh, uh, I won't read the whole thing but um, he says as he ends the book everybody would be dreaming and getting it on the national psyche would change. And in a lot of ways, it would resemble the night of the living dead. The road out would be treacherous and I didn't know where it would lead, but I followed it anyway. It was a strange world that would, uh, that would unfold a thunderhead of a world with jagged lightning edges. Many got it wrong and never did get it right. I went straight into it. It was wide open. One thing's for sure. Not only was it not run by God, but it wasn't run by the devil either.
3: <laughs> I
4: love that so much.
2: Uh, well, I think
0: that that's probably a good place to, to end it, to wrap up the, this uh, discussion about Bob. I mean, as, as you're saying, I, it does seem with the book that what he ch- chooses to talk about and what he chooses not to says almost, almost as much as about like actually as what he actually says. It's
2: about the notes you don't uh, play. But <laughs> I,
0: I, you know, I sense that from, yeah, it's the notes you don't play, but I mean, I sense from you guys and what I know about Dylan that there's like a million avenues to talk about his life, his works. Like you can approach it from basically every angle, uh, which is why you guys have a whole show about
1: it. Literally 150 episodes running uh, that we've been doing for going on two years at this point, and shows no no sign of stopping. So if you didn't get enough prattling about Bob, uh, you've got. Hours upon hours of bullshit awaiting yeah. you in our podcast feed.
0: Well, I will leave it to you guys to continue uh, going down the Dylan hole. Uh,
1: and if anybody who's listening wants to
0: uh, fo- follow you on that journey, where can they find the Jokerman?
1: Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. I think both are just at Jokerman Podcast. Uh, we're on all of the the podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple uh, most uh, most popularly. Uh, we also have a Patreon. Subscribe there, but you probably want to you know sample the product before you buy it. So you know, listen <laughs> listen to a few, then come uh, then come hop on the Patreon board and. Uh, Boy, there's, uh, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have a good time. <laughs> and thank you both for having us on. We're both yeah. uh, big fans Absolutely. of your show. Absolutely,
0: yeah thanks for 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 you know taking taking lead with uh all the uh dylan info on this one
4: yeah i, f- uh, I feel better knowing from from the other side now of, <laughs> of some real heads
0: yeah it's it, it, he's he's such a he's kind of a daunting figure as i was just saying to because there's just so much that you can uh that you can do so we appreciate you guys coming on and uh leading us through it
4: you know y- if you try to make a movie about him like you gotta get like 10 actors to play him
2: <laughs> don't even get it's like that's got of a so guy. many facets <laughs> yeah. one of the worst movies ever made <laughs> 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 Maybe we should watch that movie sometime. I've never seen it. I've never, never seen seen hey, it. You'll have a great time. Uh,
0: all right. Uh thank you for listening. This has been And Introducing. Uh mm-hmm. you can follow us on Twitter at And Intro Pod or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com dot Yes. Um, our, our SoundCloud is as always at SoundCloud.com slash and dash intro. Dash Pod. Uh <laughs> and as always, tell a friend uh if you like the show uh the best way that we can find a new audience yes uh but that's it thanks to the jokerman thank you to bob dylan uh <laughs> the times they are changing and the way that they are changing and is, is that now the podcast is over
4: uh ending <laughs> the <laughs> podcast is uh ending yes yes hell yeah all right that's it bye